0: A gapless ring makes it where you don't have that big gap, so you're not paying the price for that big gap when you're running boost or you're running any kind of, you know, highly oxygenated fuel. So I really like gapless ring setups in boosted applications, methanol E85 applications. So that's one reason for a gapless ring setup.
1: It's time for Class Racing Today, the podcast for the NHRA class racing fan. welcome back to class racing today class racing today.com classracingtoday, gmail.com if you have any questions or comments you can send them there uh, if you're watching live on facebook you can also uh, send us a comment in the chats if you want to help support the show uh, remember you can directly support the show on class find the donate button you get to choose the value you get out of the show and turn that back into dollars and send it our way so we can continue these conversations with people in the stock and super stock world uh and around nhra um Brian is back in studio after a long hiatus. We say probably not, but uh, <laughs> also if you're watching live on Facebook, you can send stars uh, as another way to say uh, that you like us. So thank you very much, um, Brian. <clears throat> how are you today? Good. I uh,
2: I was technically not on the show. But I did spend a lot of time. I pretty much watched the whole thing from my little booth at the farm show. And people walk by like, what are you watching? I'm like, oh, check this out. It's really awesome. So they had no idea what they were looking like. There's like, this is not farm parts or seed or chemical. Why are we watching this? I'm like, because Bobby's awesome and Turk is just like the best guy ever. Like I thoroughly enjoyed spectating from the uh from the outskirts. And I would have loved to have been on that, but about the time I'm on, I'd been getting interrupted by all the old ladies asking where my free candy is. So
1: (laughs) you could have said, hang on, hang on. I got the, got to finish this interview first.
2: Yeah. I just, I don't give anything away at farm shows. Like you want to come talk to me? I'll give you advice and sell you parts, but take all your free cap and go somewhere else. Nice. but Go to the
3: booth next door. (laughs)
2: Well, that's the problem. Like spring is coming. Like I woke up like, Oh my God, it's almost spring. I have all this work to get done before my farmers can go to the field. And, Somehow yesterday I decided I'm going to move my race car trailer because I want to make sure that's in shape before I get busy because I'll never get a look at it again. It's froze to the ground. I literally hooked onto it. I can't move it. It's like in a snowbank. Like, this is terrible. I sure wish I had a nice shop to put it in, but...
1: Ooh, ooh, ooh. Why? Why don't you, Brian? Uh, (laughs) What happened there? (laughs) God intervened and
2: put it in a pile, so now I can start over.
1: Blaming it on God. That's always a good idea. (laughs) No. So if, if you remember a couple episodes ago, uh, we were asking for people that could help rebuild that or finish the building. Um, now we need to start over. What happened? I think it's a good thing, the 60
2: mile an hour straight west wind on rafters Ugh. didn't work very good. So now I'll be selling firewood when Bobby's <laughs> out racing.
3: Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I've That's actually...
2: I actually feel better about now though, because I've blown snow out of it twice. Like I want to sweep my shop. I don't want to have to blow snow out of it. So now it's just like, all right, it's done. It's over. It's out of my mind. We'll just bulldoze it out and start over. Worry about it next summer. Hey, thanks, Jim. Jim just sent 50 stars. Awesome. Appreciate
3: that. Jim Norris. Cool. How was your weekend, Bobby? It was pretty good. I was excited to actually go on, um, what NHRA.tv and check out some action from division two south georgia motorsports park we had the first official nhra points race of the season and a really cool car won actually a 1969 camaro with a 396 uh a stick car gotta love when the stick shifts win Uh, keith bennett it's a nice yellow 69 camaro and uh i've actually raced him before when i went down to florida and um he's a really nice guy and he watches and listens to the show. So congratulations, Keith Bennett, on your win. You are, you're number one in the points nationally. Ranked number one right now. So congratulations. And then Austin Alvey took the win in Superstock. He's got a 2005 Pontiac Sunfire. Uh, GTG Automatic is his class. So not sure what engine combination he's running. Probably a 305 or a 350 of some kind. And um, he got it done in Superstock. So congratulations, Austin Alvey. That kid is all of possibly 21 years old, maybe. I don't even know if he was old enough to go have a celebratory drink after the race, but if he was, uh, be safe and congratulations and hope to see all these guys down at uh, Gainesville. I'm heading there in a couple of weeks for the Gator Nationals and I can't wait to get out of this miserable weather and get down there and smell here, touch
2: some nice uh, race cars. So I'm curious if the 69 Camaro stick guys are happy That the shipping whole shipping weight debacle ended because you know that took out pretty much three of the fastest a stick cars in the country when they changed that but now that's changed back and they're back in the party so
3: yeah i don't understand what the whole point of that was i mean okay they went through and they and they revisited all the shipping weights over the last 60 years and apparently a ton of changes need to be made which threw everybody through a a loop you know, four days before the first race of the season. So, combos disappeared. People's natural classes were changed. Everybody was confused. And then NHRA came back out and said, never mind. So, now is it never mind forever or is it never mind until 2023? I think it's never mind until 2023. But all the racers are saying, why do we even have shipping weights anymore? Why not just take your horsepower rating, multiply it by whichever class, class weight break you want to go into. And that's it. Like, why do I have to add 400 pounds to my car? Because the natural class is N. Why can't I just, you know, I want to run L or I want to run K or something. Why can't I just do 13 times my horsepower rating and add the 170, which I don't even know why there's that 170 driver weight anyway. Uh, I'm only 130 pounds. So that's kind of like overweight for me. And, um, just put the car in the class that I want to put it in. So that's the ongoing argument. We'll see where that goes. We'll keep you updated on anything that, that happens. Uh, with that they don't use shipping weights anymore as far as Superstock gt is concerned i've never understood how you classify your car in gt i think i finally understand it now um but before when there were shipping weights involved and then there was a plus or minus 250 pounds that's the one the part that i ne- just didn't understand um they got rid of all of that and they do it this way where you just take your horsepower rating and find a class People want that to happen in regular stock and regular super stock. So, what
2: about the fundamental issue that the Copos and drag packs never had a shipping weight? So, virtually you punished all the, the combinations. You know, the, the Firebird's been around for 20 years being raced, and all of a sudden they made a huge change, dropped it a couple classes, but yet all the new cars aren't getting touched because there's not even a shipping weight on a, a Copo or a drag pack, from what I understand. It's like, I'm not opposed to what they're doing, but I don't know that they had it all figured out when they did it either. Let's figure it out now and change it in like August when people can still prepare for it.
3: Right. Or change it, have it all figured out now, change it you for know, the next season. November November 6th after the race season's finished and everybody has all winter to figure out where their car is going to go and classify. It's a situation where they just started shooting the, con, the gun without aiming at something. It's just a rushed it was a rushed job it sounded like from our end so enough about that we'll see where that goes I and think, yeah I don't know about the factory the factory cars I know, will say do. though
2: the timing of that was released on Lonnie Grimm's <laughs> anniversary how do you do you think you just like threw the phone away like going out to eat anniversary supper <laughs> with your wife you know that phone <laughs> yeah. was blowing up like oh my happy anniversary um, honey I'm gonna be on the phone for the next three days
3: talk about a job that I just would not want to have oh man screen call screening
2: well, we we appreciate it. what they're doing.
3: Yeah, we do. Uh, I like that they're fixing things. I like that they're taking initiative. That is good. I'm not going to take that away from them. So keep it up, NHRA. Um, just you know, maybe the maybe the timing of it or or a little more transparency, leading up to it, could could help in that situation. All right, let's learn about oil. All right, oil, friction, piston rings. You got it stock and super stock this, these are performance based classes no matter how badly some some try to take that away <laughs> and turning it into a bracket class uh, but we like to get every ounce of power we can so this is why we 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 like educate uh educational and informative episodes so we went out and hunted down a very well-known tribologist you know what a tribologist does i just feel like it's just somebody who's smarter than me when i hear that word
2: it feels like one of those words you just make up so you sound smart like right? what do you do i'm a tribologist i can't even say that word like
3: that's when your when your parents say what are you studying at school <laughs> liberal arts you getting something no i'm a tribologist all right i don't know what that is but it sounds good i'll pay the tuition <laughs> all right well known son of a uh famous nascar uh team uh, driver owner lake speed we have lake speed
0: jr on the show lake speed jr how you doing sir i'm doing great thanks for having me guys In at tribology it's the study of friction wear and lubrication it is a real term i, I like see. it because it is a weird term right most people don't know it so it's like what the hell is that friction wear and lubrication
2: is your business card like a little bit longer than the average business card just to fit
0: I should. It should be. I. I used when I first got the certification. That was, you know, like a decade and a half ago, something like that. And there was only like, seven hundred people who were actually certified on the whole planet, with uh, this credential. So I had the big giant thing on the business card. So yeah, it was like, my name is really small down here and all that because I had the big, you know, here's my big award on my chest. I have to brag that yeah, I have this certification. That I'm an oil nerd. So. I feel like that that would be a good
2: pickup line, you know, when you're young and single. You know,
0: I was going (laughs) to say that I was like, I'm not going to go there. It was, we always laughed about it. Yeah. I'm a certified lubrication specialist. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Don't go there. (laughs) So anyway,
1: that's better that way. Yeah. Let's talk about how you got started. Where, where did you get
3: your education in this field?
0: Well, you know, so back to, you were saying, We're racers, you know, whether you're going straight line or going in circles, left, right, it's, you got to have power. And, you know, for me, my dad being a NASCAR driver, I worked in NASCAR teams pretty much my whole life. My first job was pushing a broom in a NASCAR shop, of course it was my dad's, Um, but ended up going to work at Joe Gibbs Racing. Was very fortunate to be there during what I kind of consider the halcyon era uh of nascar that mid-2000s money was not an object <laughs> it was whatever you wanted to do do it go fast win races win championships i always made these jokes that you know, home depot fedex m&ms interstate batteries never asked us how much money we spent on oil they didn't care it was how much money me how, how many races did you win did you win a championship that's all they cared about So getting to work for Mark Cronquist, who was a head engine guy at Gibson, still the head engine guy at Gibbs. We really looked into, okay, how do we make these engines more efficient? Because we couldn't make them bigger. And they had an RPM limit, so we couldn't turn them higher RPM. So it was like, well, how do we squeeze more power out of what we have? You can't change this carburetor size. You can't change displacement. You can't change RPM. So essentially, we were limited in terms of how much air you could process. So, from yeah that's really you know if you think about an engine it it's a chemical reactor that's why I love engines because it's all about chemistry actually um, you can only create as much energy from combustion as you can put air in the engine you The fuel just comes along with the, with the air right that's you got to get the air fuel ratio correct uh to try to maximize power, but if I'm limited on air, then that's my limit of power I can make well that's not how much power gets to the rear wheels. Now, this in my world, because I'm not the airflow guy, as are, there's a lot of smart guys about airflow. I'm not one of them. But once you have that airflow and you create that combustion, how much of that combustion power do I can make it to the rear wheels? That's where tribology comes in. That's where we need to have good ring seal. That's where you have to have low friction. So, we set off on a long project of many years of working. We worked you know, with the guys here at Total Seal. That's how I got to be connected with Total Seal was that we were developing in concert um, lower friction rings, basically thinner, lower tension rings. We worked on the honing process. We worked on the oil. It's, I always call it ring seal soup. You know, we go to Indianapolis uh, in December for the PRI show, and you can go out to St. Elmo's and you can have uh, dinner. And, you know, a lot of times they'll bring, you know, you can have appetizers. They can bring you the bean soup, and either you like the soup or you don't like the soup. Uh, If they bring you the shrimp cocktail, well, you can eat the shrimp or you can eat the cocktail sauce or you can scrape the cocktail sauce if you don't want it. The soup, step. I mean, you can't change that, right? You order steak dinner. If you don't like the potatoes, you don't have to eat them. You can still eat your steak. With soup, it's all or nothing. And because it's a combination, that's what ring seal is. It's not just the piston, it's not just the rings, it's not the oil, it's not the cylinder finish, it's all of it working together. And that's where the real efficiency came in. And so we spent years working uh, on that. And so part of that process, we worked with a company called Lubrizol. Uh, So Lubrizol is one of the companies that's kind of, remember the old BASF commercials? We don't make the products you buy, we make them better. Uh, You know, BASF is a commercial chemical company that makes what we call intermediates. It's things that chemical companies use to make end products. So Lubrizol is that for the oil and fuel industry. They make the additives that go into every brand of oil, every brand of fuel. And there's only four companies that actually make the additives. You got Lubrizol, Afton, ornite, and Finium. So you think about that. No one's ever heard of those names probably. But you go into Walmart or you can go into AutoZone and there's a whole giant wall full of all these miracle molecules and stuff. Mm, Those guys don't make that stuff. They don't make the additives. They just buy the additives and they blend it together. They blend and package and market, but they don't make the molecules. It's the Lubrizols, the Aftons, ornites, and Finiums that make molecules. So at Gibbs, we had a partnership with Lubrizol and I was fortunate enough to, because of that, that R&D relationship with Lubrizol to be able to go through their training program. And that's how I got to become a tribologist was that I was fortunate enough that they were, had a mentorship program and I was able to mentor with one of the senior guys at Lubrizol and have him teach me all kinds of things and go through their classes and not learned a lot of stuff. And it's, It's been fun. And for the the racer, the benefit of all this is we can help you go faster. (laughs) It's literally, we can help you go a lot faster. We uh, we work on this program called the Engine Performance Expo, uh, which is kind of a virtual version of what AETC was. Remember the old AETC was the Advanced Engine uh, Technology Conference, which happened uh, before PRI. And then a couple of years ago, they killed it off. And, but a bunch of us, you know, like myself, Ben Strader, Billy Godbold, uh, John Kazi. we were, all, I mean, we loved AETC. And so we kind of came up with this idea this engine performance expo to kind of resurrect that concept, but make it virtual. So you didn't have to travel and do all that kind of stuff. I mean, long story short, we built an engine this year and, you know, Robert, we were talking at Indy this year about oil viscosity and how important that is. And, you know, people watching this if you're a class racer you already kind of know this but here's some actual numbers for you so we've got this engine we're building which is an ls engine a, you know, 392 uh cubic inch ls and was built to be boosted so it had a blower cam in it and all that but we we're breaking in the engine uh in a just to make sure everything was right and good before we hooked up the pro charger and made some boost. So we broke it in on BR30, which is, you know, 5W30 breaking oil. And it's got a one millimeter, one millimeter, two millimeter ring package in it. It's a gapless gas-ported top ring. So it's a pretty tricked out piece um, because the pistons were, you know, because, hey, this is 2021, right? This is all this is going on. It's hard to get parts. So we were able to find some Mala pistons that were power-packed shelf pistons um, we could get. That was great, but they didn't have any gas ports. That's fine. We can gas port the ring. It's even better than gas porting the piston, actually. So we do the gapless gas ported ring, we get everything together, breaking it in A, 5W30, break in oil, BR30, run it in, boom, all right, looks looking good. So we're not going to run 530 on boost. So Ben Strader's there and we're at his dyno and he's like, hey, let's put the 1540 in there and let's just see what happens because the 1540 is the race oil let's just see how much power difference there is between this BR30 and the 1540 race walk. This is an aluminum rod engine. So when we're going to make 1300 horsepower, you're not doing that on 530. Now, interesting thing here is most of the testing I've been doing most of my life is, you know, NASCAR type stuff. It's endurance testing. You know, you're running engines for hours at a time, not seconds at a time. So everything's that. 200 degrees oil temperature or water temperature, probably 250, 260 degrees oil temperature. Well, this is like a drag race deal, like almost like pro stockish. We're running 100 degrees water temperature, 120 degrees oil temperature. So at that low of a temperature, when we go from 5W30 to 15W40, we lost 25 horsepower you let that sink in for a second. 25 just changing viscosity. Right. We didn't change oil temperature. We didn't change water temperature. We went from 530 to 15W40 and dropped 25 horsepower. It even shocked me. I mean, I didn't think the 1540 would be as good as the 530. I knew it would lose a little bit. Yeah. I thought it may lose four or five. Right. Not 25.
3: Yeah,
0: <laughs> And you hear stories about people gaining tons of power, picking up lots of ET, going to light oils when they're running heads up. Well, that's why. And, and it's all about what we call viscosity index. So all oils get thinner as they get hotter. I mean, think about maple syrup in your refrigerator. You, know, you, you, you pull it out of the fridge, that stuff pours pretty thick. But once you get it in the hot pancake, it thins out. So that's probably one of the most misunderstood things about oil is that W in 5W20 doesn't stand for weight. It means winter. (laughs) And the number before the W and the number after the W are not related. Don't even try to relate and say, oh, a 520 means it's a 5 when it's cold and a 20 when it's hot. No, no, that's not true, not even remotely true. The number before the W is a cold cranking measurement. Imagine you know your engine turning over. So that's at negative 30 degrees Celsius, is where they're measuring the, the flow measurement. And it's not even a flow measurement. It's a rotational torque measurement. Like how much torque does it take to turn the engine over? So they're taking the oil, they're chilling it down. They're putting a rod in it and they're measuring the rotational torque it takes to turn the oil in or turn that rod in the oil at that temperature. So the lower the number, the easier it flows or easier it cranks. Essentially, that's the idea. The number after the W is measured at a hundred degrees uh, Celsius, so that's two hundred and twelve degrees Fahrenheit. All right. <clears throat> that's a flow measurement. So if you say like this example with the engine performance expo engine so there's a a, a term called sinistoke right it's not made up again not, not, not another another terminology i know i get this stuff up sinistoke is the actual flow measurement if
3: you mm-hmm. measure
0: the the time it takes for the oil to go from point a to point b that's called a sinistoke so the higher the number the slower the flow right. so for example with that losing 25 horsepower that 5W30 oil, at 120 degrees Fahrenheit oil temperature, was about 32 centistokes. That 15W40, at 120 degrees Fahrenheit, was 70 centistokes. Yeah, so so it was double much more. Yeah, and double and, the viscosity. And, this is why it lost so much horsepower. So that's the key to unlocking how much power potential you can extract from the engine right in You're fixed. You're class racing. You can't put more air. You can't put more fuel. Well, how do I get more out? You have to know your operating oil temperature. If you don't have a temperature probe somewhere in your oil system to know what your oil temperature is, you are flying blind and you're probably leaving power on the table.
3: So, well, that's where I wanted to take you. I did a huge dive into viscosity index last year um, and talked to Driven Rachel, Kyle Fickler, and a couple mm-hmm. engineers from there. And all right, let's just take the Driven XP1. It's a 5W20. Mm-hmm. Um, the viscosity at 104 degrees Fahrenheit is 45.18. And then the viscosity at 212 degrees Fahrenheit is 8.87. So those are centistokes, right? Those yes, sir. those two numbers. So that's like, that's where I was saying, how is it a 520? But it's literally, but it's actually an 845. So I thought that the 520 was supposed to be the centistokes um, when, it, when they were talking about the viscosity, of the 5w20. But you just clearly told me that that's not how that works. You told us how, how that does work. The other number, the number I was putting the most emphasis on throughout all the research was the viscosity index. Okay, the Driven XP1 has a viscosity index of 180, which is pretty high. And they said that that number relates the change in the oil to the temperature increase. So some some oils that I was running, I I run Brad Penn 1030 Mm -hmm. in my super stock car, and that only had a VI of 138, which I thought was terrible. But then there was a Royal Purple 030 that had a viscosity index of 220, which, which was amazing. So... I was basing my oil selection on okay, who's got the highest VI number because that means the oil is going to change the least, which is very crucial. Ninety uh, percent of the time for us because we're a bracket, we have to be predictable. Right. We have we need consistency. Now, if it comes time for a heads up, sure, you can either switch to a lighter oil, which scares me sometimes because I I I kind of run like a hydraulic lifter that's mm-hmm. you know shimmed up a little bit. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm more about longevity than I am about performance sometimes because I don't have three engines sitting on the shelf, but I'm, I'm also a fan of taking, maybe taking oil out of the, out of the car and reducing the, uh, number of quarts that are in the, uh, oil pan. So right. I know I just went on a tangent in three different directions right there. The whole point oh. of that little thing was, um, the Senna and how much that changes, um, and in, in relation to the VI. So is that something we should be looking at for viscosity index whenever we purchase oil?
0: Well, this brings up a great topic. So back to, you mentioned centistokes and you, how you were doing that research with the viscosity index. So, so the Sinistoke is only what you, what you use to measure the number after the W. The okay. number before the W is measured in centipoise. So there are two different things, right? One's rotational, one's flow, completely separate. To your point about viscosity index, generally speaking, the higher the viscosity index, the more stable the oil will be in terms of that synestoke relative to temperature change, which is a good thing. Now, the trick is you can increase the viscosity index by adding what's called viscosity index improver additives. So... The more viscosity index improver added additive you put in the oil, typically the higher the viscosity index is going to be, the larger the split between the number before the W and after the W. Like most things in life, there is no free lunch. <laughs> so what, what can happen is what's called the shear stability. How stable is that polymer to maintaining its structure? Because in a race engine, uh, especially an engine that has hydraulic lifters, where you have lots of shear, you have a lot of opportunity for mechanically to, she- to shear and tear uh, those those polymers, you can lose some of that viscosity index. It will basically lose that operating viscosity. Um so it may start off and you're right on the edge of how thin you can be and then it falls off the edge because it shears. So that, that's, and what, what I'm saying to this is beware of the trap of looking at the spec sheet and basing your decision solely off the spec sheet. Because what can happen is if you just try to find the oil that has all the best numbers, the highest of everything you think is good, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work the best in your particular application. Are those, are
2: those measurements standardized? Like yes. is the, they're all the they same. Are. That's industry standards. So everybody's tested. Oh, industry standard,
0: platform. Yeah. So it's, yeah. they it should be the same from brand to brand to brand um, without a doubt. Now, one of the things that I said, you, you, I've been doing this for a long time and had a lot of conversations with people. So this is me kind of giving you, you know, my view of the world, like my, my soapbox uh, speech here on uh, choosing oil. Most people choose oil backwards. And let me, have me uh, describe what I mean by that. What, they mean, what I mean is they start off with the brand first. They have their brand that they like. Then they say, okay, I like this brand for whatever reason. All right, now, what's the sexiest brand, you know, product they have, right? What's one that has, the best spec sheet numbers, then I'm gonna try to make that work in my application. In reality is the brand choice should be the last. You should really start off with your application. What am I doing, right? And I don't mean what kind of heads you have, what kind of cam you have, I don't don't care. The world doesn't know, it doesn't care. It's what am I doing? What fuel am I running? What operating temperature range am I running in? those are the things that matter the most because if i'm running at a very low temperature then that's going to put me in a certain viscosity range because of what i what i'm doing right the higher the temperature that you run typically the higher the viscosity is going to need to be because all oils get thinner as they get hotter right if you, is kind of a fun thing to think about in terms of the we'll call it the operating viscosity okay so Pro-stock car, NASCAR, 410 Sprint car, completely different. You've 500 cubic inch engine running at essentially, we'll call it 100 degrees Fahrenheit. You've got a 358 cubic inch engine running at 220, 240 degrees Fahrenheit you got a 410-cubic-inch engine running on methanol running at 300 degrees oil temperature. That 410 engine is running at 1550. That NASCAR engine is running at 520. Pro-stock cars running at 0W or something. Because most of all the numbers below a 20 are made up. Because SAE, back in the day, SAE didn't define anything thinner than a 0W20. So any viscosity less than 020 it was made up. Well now they've defined things as a 016, a 012, even a zero eight. So they they you can get thinner. So um, but no one's really used those terminologies yet. So we'll just stick with zero w for the pro stock, 520, 15, W50. All right. So you'd say, okay, that zero w I mean that is the thinnest oil. Ha ha. But at the operating temperature they run at, that zero twenty runs about or that 0W in the Pro Stock runs about 12 centistokes operating viscosity. That cup engine is running about 8 centistokes operating viscosity and that 1550 in that, that 410 sprint car is running about 7 centistokes operating viscosity. So the thickest oil is actually running at the lowest operating viscosity of all three engines. Just That's shows the how important the temperature get. is, right? I guess. Bingo. It. Yep. You have to start with temperature. If you don't know temperature, you don't know anything. You're just guessing. So define the application. <clears throat> That's going to dictate the chemistry because that pro stock engine running at very low temperature, the type of additives, the type of friction modifiers that will give you the most power increase is different than the ones that will run the best at 300
1: degrees fahrenheit right so now if i told
0: you that
3: my temperature my engine temperature because i did put a probe in starting Mm -hmm. last year because i wanted to learn this stuff uh i'm about one 150 150 degrees okay now that number when i say the viscosity at 104 fahrenheit is 44 and the viscosity at 212 is 10 that's not a linear no, not it, even close to right. Limit. So I just can't come up with a with a line of best fit and say, okay, I'm at 150, so my viscosity is, you know, here. Is there a formula or is there something we can use where I say, okay, my temperature is 150. Uh, what's my viscosity at 150? Is there a way for me to figure that out? So,
0: I know Lubrizol had a calculator that had a web on one of their portals where we could access because we had, you know, technical affinity with them. We could put in the specifics of the oil. We could put in the viscosity, at a couple of different temperatures, enter in a specific gravity. What temperature the specific gravity was measured at, and then it would actually calculate and give you an approximate Sinistope number at any temperature you wanted. Right. Um, and like most things in math, uh, if you're in between the two points, it's more accurate than if you're outside those two points. Um, so in your case, a 150 number, you could you could dial that in and be Close enough to be really confident in what it is. There may be uh, some calculators out there. You probably, somebody, if you want to go Google and look at viscosity calculators uh, and see, and what it was, what, what, for it to be accurate, what it's going to need to know is viscosity in centistokes at a given temperature. And then you're going to need to have specific gravity at a temperature. Now, all those things should be on a spec sheet or an msds sheet so this is information that you should you should be able to find pretty easy and if there's a calculator out there uh that you can find type it in then boom you can be right there so i have a a quick
2: question i guess just to unnerd this a little bit so dumb it down and make it simple i guess so what you're saying is basically you want to run an engine oil temperature to so you know what your you know basically log that information so you know what your operating temperature of your oil is yes because i'm guessing there's going to be fluctuations in that based on the internal frictions of your motor like a a roller cam compared to hydraulic and stuff like that correct that would change the operating temperature of the oil
0: it can so the 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 thing that has the most influence on the operating temperature of the engine is actually the piston rings i know that sounds like i'm a piston ring salesman but uh reality is we actually did a test you know last year we took a 16th 16th 316th ring package And we ran this test engine that we've had for a long time that we would do cam testing on. And we've got literally thousands of dyno pulls in this engine. So we know exactly what temperature this thing runs. And so we took the 16th, 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 or 16th, 16th, 316th ring package and we compared it to a 0.7, 0.7 two millimeter ring package. Now, of course, the 0.7 package made more power than the 16th package. But the thing that was the most interesting was that the water temperature and the oil temperature dropped going from the 16th package to the 0.7. So it was literally 25 degrees water temperature, 15 degrees oil temperature dropped. And that's a key thing is that some people were like, oh, the water temperature went down because... You couldn't transfer as much heat out of the piston. The rings aren't the only thing transferring heat out of the piston. The oil does too. So if, we had, if it had just been that we limited the amount of heat transfer from the piston through the rings by making the ring smaller, then the oil temperature would have gone up, right? The water temperature could have gone down, but oil temperature would have gone up. That didn't happen both went down and the reason both went down is because we reduced friction which is why the horsepower went up 25 horsepower so that was what is because think about it the piston ring rubbing against the cylinder wall is the number one source of friction in any internal combustion engine even compressors right that's not my term. me saying it that's ford motor company saying that's the department of energy saying it they have Pub, uh, public studies they've published, you can go see that, that document all of this stuff. It's about 40% of all engine friction is the piston ring rubbing against the cylinder wall. Now, think about it. If you start rubbing your hands together, what happens? It gets warmer. That's what we do on cold days. Isn't that right, Robert? <laughs> you outside right now, you're rubbing <laughs> your it right now <laughs> to keep them warmed up. So that bigger, higher tension ring generates more heat. And that heat goes into the water, it goes into the oil. If I reduce that friction, not only do I increase horsepower, I also reduce my operating temperature. And that's one of the key things that we did in in NASCAR is when we were limited on the amount of air air opening to cool the engine, well, we wanna run that engine as cool as we can. Because we want to run the least amount of opening for downforce. Crew chiefs like to put duct tape on the front of cars to make more downforce because it makes the car go faster around the corner. So we went on a long process with lots of engineering involved to find a way to make that engine run temperature efficient as possible. And reducing ring size was part of that whole process.
2: So part of the whole, like, all the why run... 520 so that's what everybody should run well it's more specific to what your whole you know you're basically building an oil to your pack to your specific combination with engine not just what the engine guy or you know i think some people just yes. oh i run whatever or oh, 020 and that's yeah. oh well, that's got to be the best
0: viscosity is just as critical to engine performance as your rocker ratio i mean rocker ratio goes right along with your camshaft design right you don't just pick a rocker ratio irrespective of your cam lobe and expect to have proper piston to valve clearance and have proper uh, uh, valve timing. No, it, it has to work together. So your oil viscosity, it goes hand in glove with your cylinder finish, with your bearing clearance and the operating temperature of the engine. And to get the most performance out of your engine, you need to know those things. You need to know what your bearing clearances are You need to know uh, what the cylinder finish is, and you need to know what your operating oil temperature is. So if you're not data logging your oil temperature, that's the first thing you need to do. Understand it. Then you can begin to make choices on your oil viscosity based on that.
3: Is there an optimal Centistoke measure for uh motor oil for for an engine if i know that i operate at 150 degrees fahrenheit oil temperature um where where should i be that my engine would be happiest as far as senistokes is concerned
0: well so it's going to vary based on bearing clearance so the wider the bearing clearance the thicker the senistoke value has to be uh because there's a thing called the stribeck curve which we won't get into that we've already probably nerded out deep enough already uh, but essentially, the thing of this is viscosity times speed divided by load. So the higher the power of the engine, that's load. And then the higher the RPM of the engine, the less you know the oil viscosity pack, factors into that. So it's viscosity times speed. So if I've got a lower RPM engine for the same amount of horsepower, same load, I have to run a higher viscosity. If I run a higher RPM, the same power, I can run a lower viscosity if i open that bearing clearance up now i have less contact area so i need more viscosity because i that load isn't just cylinder pressure it's cylinder pressure by the contact area if i narrow that bearing up i'm reducing the contact area so i'm increasing the actual load on that bearing because i'm making the contact area smaller and by opening the bearing clearance up i'm making the line of contact smaller so tighter clearances thinner oil looser clearances thicker oil and how tight you can run on bearing clearance really depends upon the stiffness of the crankshaft um, if it if it's looking like it's spaghetti in there you got to open the bearing clearance up if it's rock solid and moving then you can really tighten that bearing clearance up let you run lower viscosity again it's it's all interrelated it's soup that's the key it's it's understanding the different variables and then dialing it in so there's not a one number that you, that just works for everything it's about getting that package together and again the key thing is like if you're looking at your oil temperature and then you can do things like oil analysis that kind of can give you an idea of how your bearings are holding up and without having to pull the engine apart and, and actually pull the caps off and things and look at it so you can do things to creep up on that number and get it to where, where you need to be. But once you dial it in and you get it right, man, your engine is going to be really happy. It's going to be more consistent. Uh, So there's some things you can do there to gain a little bit of power and gain consistency.
2: What are your thoughts on like maintenance cycles? Like how often, how many runs should a guy put on his
0: oil? So that's a great question. And what it really, the answer is it depends. And what I mean by that is fuel is the enemy of your oil. Uh, later today, actually in about an hour. Yeah. Less than that, maybe <laughs> we, we're doing a, a web webinar, uh, with the guys at VP with P E R A. Um, yeah, so 30 minutes from now, actually, um, about fuel. So, uh, that's a great topic because fuel is the enemy of your oil and that's what makes the oil have to be changed. The same base oil, that we use to make engine oil is the same base oil we use to make rear gear fluid, transmission fluid, or turbine oil. Your gear oil, I mean, there's fuel for life. Transmission fluids. Most vehicle manufacturers recommend seventy five thousand miles before you change your gear oil, but you're changing your engine oil at maybe ten thousand miles most. Why? It's the same base oil. The difference is contamination. The number one contamination is fuel. So the richer you run your engine, the more fuel dilution you get in the oil, the more often you have to change the oil. That's the key, which is why, again, oil analysis is a great tool to use to measure how much fuel am I getting in my oil. If I get a lot of fuel dilution in my oil, I going to need to maybe Shorten up that drain interval. If I'm getting less fuel dilution in my oil, I can extend that out. And I don't have to change it as often. So that's really the key: is fuel dilution.
3: Uh, drag racing oil never really gets up to a high enough temperature to to burn any any toxins or a- anything off. From what I was told by by the folks at driven. So true. I think that, they said that contributed to drain intervals have to be sooner in a drag race engine. You're never going to get it up to the temperature that you would get like your street vehicle up to. Right. So there's moisture in there too. I mean, you know, when you take off, uh, say you take off a valve cover on a day that, you know, it was cold or, or something like that, or winter or something. And you see that, you know, a little bit of that milkshake like substance in there. Mm-hmm. I mean, does that mean I, I should just change this immediately,
0: or you know, is some of that going to burn off? Like, well, I mean, water is the enemy. Yeah, it's water is even worse than fuel. Now, you know, water is a byproduct of combustion. When you have combustion, we are making water in the combustion chamber. Um, that water vapor will get past the rings; It can get into the crankcase, uh, like you said. If you're not getting that oil temperature up to 212 degrees Fahrenheit, which is the boiling point of water, guess what's going to happen? That condensation is just going to build up, build up, build up. It's never going to evaporate off. So it will shorten the life of the oil. It can lead to sludge and a lot of the junk in the oil pans. The guys see, well, that's because it's moisture buildup. So those are good indications. If, If you're seeing milky stuff in the oil, you either need to heat the oil up to evaporate it out or you need to change the oil.
3: Right. Um, and now, since you said we only have a half an hour, uh, <laughs> synthetic versus conventional, go.
0: <laughs> so me back to the spec sheet thing, they all have their pros and cons. So synthetic oils can live longer at extreme temperatures, very high. They can also flow better at very low temperatures. They typically have... Um, We call it, you know, less internal friction so they can give you more power. So synthetics are really, really great. The downside to synthetics, other than cost are they, they don't typically have as much they call pressure viscosity coefficient. So if you think about a really high spring pressure on a roller cam or roller tip, that line of contact under that extreme pressure, the oil will not thicken very much. So, it can be harder on roller applications having a full synthetic because it doesn't build viscosity there. So it relies on the additive package to do all the work, which means you're going to change it more often, which people don't like doing that, especially when it costs more, but a straight mineral oil the problem with that is straight mineral oil. It's so thick and it's got such a low viscosity index that you're going to compromise on power, uh, So a synthetic blend actually can kind of give you the best of both worlds. So if you've got a high spring pressure application, bushing lifters, things like that, um, you can get longer roller life, especially needle bearings uh, and bushings. They really like the semi-synthetics. If you're not worrying about longevity of parts, you just want max power, then full synthetic is the way to go. Uh, If you have a really high RPM engine, where valve springs are really the key to your life, then synthetics can pull more heat out of those valve springs, which means they'll live longer. So it's really not about what I said earlier. It's not about <laughs> picking, using the spec sheet. And all that. The application always dictates chemistry. That's the lesson to be learned from all of this. Application dictates chemistry. And then once you've sort all that out, then it, the the choice becomes logical, and then the brand choice is the last thing. You just choose the brand that you trust, that you have a relationship with, or, or whatever it is. But let the application dictate your choice of chemistry first.
3: I choose the brand that pays contingency. So hey, listen, whatever brand you choose, <laughs> so, for whatever reason. Total seal. What do you think? Driven. What do you think? <laughs> <sighs>
0: You know, so, I mean, it's, there's different things, right, for people, be it contingency is sometimes a choice. Sometimes if they have a relationship with the company or they're close by or they sponsor them or you know, whatever. I mean, there's different reasons. I mean, that's the great thing about today is that, you know, year, years ago there weren't a lot of good choices uh, and it was hard to access good oil. Now there's lots of choices. And so it's pretty easy to be able to come up with a combination this right, and then to be able to source it and it make uh, good sense for you.
2: I want to spin off a little bit, if that's right, Bobby, and just, I want to talk about rings. Like, sure, you know, obviously coming up with the package of the oil is way more important than I would have ever thought about. Like how, what are your thoughts on rings and picking the right ring? I mean, just give us your thoughts there. I mean, I'm guessing it's some of the same, or you're saying it's all oil, yeah. rings don't matter, right?
0: Well, no, I mean, obviously <laughs> if it's, the, if the piston rubbing against the cylinder wall is the number one source of friction in the engine, then it means it should be probably the number one source of consideration past your cylinder heads, right? Because your cylinder head intake manifold camshaft, we know that's huge in terms of being able to make power. Because that's all about getting the air into the engine, right? Once we get that air in the engine, now it's about how much of that combustion energy can we actually move to put to the rear tire? That's the the biggest thing you have left, right? So beyond camshaft manifold and cylinder heads, getting the air in, the next most important thing is your piston ring, which by the way, it actually kind of relates to getting the air in the engine, because if the piston ring isn't sealed up, then you're not going to get a good signal pulling the air in. So there are people that would say the piston ring is arguably the most important thing in the engine because try to run your engine without piston rings and see how that goes for you.
1: <laughs> right?
0: So if you, if you think about what we can do with a piston ring, back to just that engine we did at Shavers we were talking about was from a 16th, 16th, 316th, down to a 0.7, 0.72 millimeter 25 horsepower, 25 degrees of water temperature, 15 degrees of oil temperature. That just kind of gives you a little bit of an idea of what's possible. So if I can go from, say, a ductile moly type ring, say then in an 043, 043, three millimeter ring package, and I can go maybe to a 0.7 millimeter ring package, well, not only am I going to gain power, but we've also seen is the engine is going to be more consistent, that um think back to nascar right just for an example early 2000s the -the state-of-the-art package was a 043 043 three millimeter ring package and those engines ran one race they didn't even run practice of qualifying we had separate engines for that because by the end of the one race 500 miles later that engine is going to be down five to eight horsepower because that ductile molly ring was soft it broke in easy and was pretty forgiving in terms of cylinder bore finish that was nice but it wore out over the course of the race now state-of-the-art in nascar is a 0.5 millimeter top ring 0.6 millimeter second ring two millimeter oil ring and that short block will live 1600 race miles so, the rings outlive the springs. So, they're changing the springs. They're redoing the, the valve jobs and stuff between races. But right now, they can actually run two races. They'll run two races in the same motor, not even touch it, not even change the springs, just let it run.
2: That's a huge savings.
0: And well, and here's the thing, too. Guess what? It's not down on power either. So, it's running 1,600 miles and it's not losing power. And like you said, it's big savings. So, yes, that steel ring set costs more than the Ducamale ring set. But not only is there a power benefit to it, there's a huge longevity benefit to it. And to me, that's the real message when it comes to piston rings is that, man, it's you can really invest in the consistency of the car. Uh, And again, if you're trying to run the same number, you want the engine to be consistent and a thinner ring package that seals up better. Is going to give you more consistency in what that engine does
3: and in stock eliminator we were limited to factory uh ring sizes uh, but now you can your piston is limited to those sizes but you can go to the smaller ring package and use spacers right exactly sounds like what everybody's kind of doing in stock eliminator now how about the oil ring though um how many pounds i mean there's you can get like a heavier lighter oil ring or you, you see cars going down the track blowing smoke out and they're and they're flying so that to me that that can't be good but how are they going so fast so do you want to lose well, oil, oil ring, or ring wanna... tension
0: is a, is a, is a big thing it is, and it's a, one of the tuning tools if you will so um if you don't have vacuum in the crank case then you're going to have to have a higher oil ring tension to be able to control the oil because at some point if you get so much oil consumption then you're going to start running into detonation and it's going to hurt the engine so you don't want that um, if i have vacuum i now i'm i have it, look, look, oil ring is about scraping the oil off the cylinder wall so that way there's not excess oil so if i've got vacuum which is helping pull that oil down so there's less oil atop top of the cylinder i can run less oil ring tension um, so then sometimes you can run a napier second, that lets you, that gives you even more scraping action. So it's really a combination. You got to think about, you know, the top ring is about sealing. The second ring does mostly oil control with a little bit of sealing. And then the oil ring is hundred percent, just heavy scraping of the oil. So back to oil viscosity, if I'm running a lower viscosity oil, I can get away with a lower oil ring tension, if I'm running crankcase vacuum, if I've got a vacuum pump on it, or I'm running uh, dry sump, then I can run less oil viscosity, I can run less oil ring tension. And so it's all back to its combination. So that's really the key is, and that's one of the things we do, we spend a lot of time on is, and it's an area to, to gain power, is dialing in the oil ring tension for the application. So Eight, nine pounds is a pretty good number for a wet sump motor without any vacuum. You can get as low as seven, but you're going to start to get into oil consumption. And the thing is, oil rings for springs, like any other spring, they lose tension over time as you cycle them. So that's something you got to keep in mind. We've got a new oil ring we come out with called the Endurance Oil Ring, where we're gas nitriding the oil ring, which raises the tension, but makes it where it doesn't lose as much tension, and that rate stays consistent over time. That way you can really dial in. So... The endurance o ring is a way to help get you closer to that uh, optimum o ring tension and then be able to maintain it so it doesn't drop off over time.
3: Oh, there's like 100 different directions I want to take this in, but I know we're getting short on time here. So, <laughs> uh, when they, okay, three ring setup, you're making that sound pretty standard. Uh, a two ring setup, you know, just not more beneficial then. Why, why have the second ring? You know, uh, so
0: the idea yeah. of the two ring section uh, setup is to try to reduce tension. Okay, The, the second ring isn't about compression sealing. Maybe twenty percent of the second ring's job is compression sealing. Um, it's about oil control. So it gives you we'll call it fine oil control, whereas the oil ring is gross oil control. If I eliminate the second ring, I have to increase all ring tension because somebody has got to do the job. So that's where I say, if you look at every super high-end application, they all run a three-ring setup. The only time you don't is in some motorcycle applications, it's, it's only because of weight. Because they're running such high RPM, by weight, they have to get rid of that weight. That's the reason why they go away from it. Not because it gives them better will control or lower friction. It's just literally because of the weight. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'd say you'd always be better to have a second ring, and then low run less O ring tension, and have a three ring setup than try to run a two ring setup.
3: Okay, it's like a give and take. Yeah, so three ring setup. Now, how about gapless rings? Uh, there's like pros and cons. Some people say yes. Some people say no. Your
1: is like too high. Don't do it. <laughs> like,
0: so. <laughs> <laughs> gapless rings are the synthetic versus conventional of the piston ring world. 100% same thing. And it, like we mentioned, there are pros and cons. That's why some people love them, some people hate them. Um, when, when's so, a
3: good time to run a gapless versus when isn't?
0: So here's my favorite reason for running a gapless ring boosted applications, anything that runs in methanol or E85. Uh, because when you're running boost, you're going to have to run more end gap, but you're going to start your engine up and it's not going to be at boost yet. And it's not going to be all heated up yet. So guess what? You got this huge end gap, which means you're going to get more fuel into the oil. And like we already said, what's the enemy of your oil? You'll <laughs> bad you know, gas and all that. So a gapless ring makes it where you don't have that big gap, so You're not paying the price for that big gap when you're running boost or you're running any kind of you know highly oxygenated fuel so i'll really like gapless ring setups in boosted applications methanol e85 applications so that's one reason for a gapless ring setup number two um you can get a stronger intake signal so in a carbureted application especially we'll call it limited airflow applications where you've got to run really really tight rules and really really small carburetors then there's some applications where that higher intake stroke from the gapless can give you a benefit now the trick is a gapless ring you can't go thinner than a 0.9 millimeter so you're that's it and and that's on the ragged edge uh, in terms of size so if you want to go something thinner because you got higher rpm then you're gonna have to not go gapless You know, so there's, again, it's trade-offs, pros and cons. I think we said earlier about some of the application dictating chemistry. (laughs) Uh, Application kind of
3: dictates piston rings, too. On this side, we're talking roughly 9,000 RPM on a carburetor, about 470 CFM we'll go with. Would
0: you go gapless or not? I'd I'd do a 0.9 millimeter gapless gas-ported one uh, 0.9.92 millimeter setup in that i think that would give you kind of the best of both worlds okay it's thin, it's thin as thin you can go and still be gapless that would be a good setup for that
3: I'll write that one down i'm glad i got this one on video this is an episode i, I just am telling everybody you're probably just gonna have to watch this one twice because there's so much information <laughs> in this episode right now somebody just said jim norris said this is the most informative best interview ever so
1: ah, oh, thank you for listening jim
3: that. norris yep I mean, stock and super stock, this is all, this is what we do. We want to squeeze every ounce of power
0: out of these motors that we can. Right. And see, that's what I, I grew up in that NASCAR research plate era where, I mean, you literally cut your arm off for half a horsepower. I mean, we would literally bought a million and a half dollar dyno at Gibbs to be able to measure tenths of horsepower. And we would get really excited. When we picked up like one. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> it's like, you pick up one horsepower, you're like, ah! Yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> We're gonna win the 500 this year. I mean, it, it's it's crazy. And it's like, I think the last oil we worked on, we picked up like 1.7 horsepower and a restricted engine. And that oil has won I don't know how many races. I mean, it's won a couple of championships. I am so proud of that oil. It's it's bad awesome uh, stuff. You know that we, that we made there for Gibbs, and it was super cool. And you're like 1.7. You I me, mean, other people are like you think a boosty guy he's like, huh? <laughs> right. I, I can pick up more than one degree of timing with that 1.7. That's just dumb. You pick up a pro charger and bolt on 400, 500, 600 horsepower. It's like you could talk about ones, you guys are crazy, but that's that's the world that I grew up in, so yeah, I, I you love would, you. Would
3: you would fit right into the class racing world then? I mean, I, hang, I, I hang,
0: love that stuff. You, you know.
3: are, um. Well, you're you're going to Pomona, so are you going to take part in? I know Total Seal does a little seminar at the track nowadays, so um, you yeah. guys should be having one there, right?
0: Yes, we are. We're so the guys from Rottler are coming. Uh, Ed Keebler, a super experienced guy in terms of honing. So we're gonna and Keith Jones. So we're gonna do a, a trackside tech talk. We call it one o'clock uh, East or Pacific time on Friday, right there at Matt Hartford's uh, Pro Stock Pit, and we're gonna talk about Pro Stock honing. So uh, some information that Matt's willing to kind of share in terms of what we do with honing processes for a pro stock engine and what we kind of see about that. So it's all about ring seal, about that soup, right? Just talk about, that's the thing. We kind of keep going around these things. We're not going to give anybody a specific recipe because everyone has a different taste, right? You're not always making Italian wedding soup. You make it different than you make tomato, basil, or versus chicken noodle soup. But you still got to make the different soups because the different classes Got to add to pursue.
3: All right. So anybody that goes to that, we didn't really talk a whole lot about honing today, but anybody that goes to that and has something to share, I know some of our listeners will definitely be there. Uh, let us We're know. There, was, there was one more question though that I forgot. Yeah. Gas porting, gas porting rings versus gas porting pistons. Do we not need to gas port pistons anymore? Should we just focus on gas porting rings now from now on? I mean, of
0: course I work for total seal, so I'm going to be biased about this. Okay. <laughs> um, but in my experience of testing it both ways, there's a benefit to gas-porting the ring versus gas-porting the piston. It doesn't mean that gas-porting pistons is bad. It just means that if you're ordering new pistons from scratch, you have the choice. I'd gas-port the ring versus gas-port the piston. And there are some people that are actually telling us they see combining them is a benefit. Doing both. Back to combination. So it's just another tool in the toolbox to make a little more power and make it run a little better.
3: Wow. All right. Well, it's getting to be that time for me to order a set of pistons. So that's something I definitely have to think about. I hope to see you at the track. You will be at Pomona. Unfortunately, I won't be there, but good luck to everybody that's headed to the Winter Nationals. Uh national event number one. I'll yeah, excited, excited about that. that. Should be Season. should be great, you know. I will be at Gainesville. Will Total Seal, will somebody from Total Seal be at
0: Gainesville to give one of the seminars? Cause I'd love to go check it out. We haven't figured the whole schedule out, but I I think that might be one of them. So we're going to have a meeting with the guys from Rottler and NHRA on Saturday uh, at Pomona to kind of map out the schedule for the year. We figured, okay, we'll, we'll go to Pomona. We'll do the first one, first race of the year, get it kicked off. And then we'll figure out the rest of the plan from there. So hopefully we'll, we'll have a schedule for the rest of the year and what events we're going to be doing uh, coming out of this weekend. I mean,
3: I think I can handle it now. I, I wrote down everything you said today. Uh, if you want me to, <laughs> you want me to take, take that one. Sure. I'll yeah. please. All you have to do I, is I'll buy the lunch. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, Talk so about soup, like says, one of the best podcasts so far. Thank you for all the info Lake. Uh, Chris Chapman, this has been great. Keep up the good work. So uh, everybody seems to really uh, be appreciative and enjoyed you joining us today lake speed jr so thank you very much
0: oh thank y'all for having me i really appreciate it i'm glad we finally got the time to make this happen we had a great talk you know at indy about doing this and it's been tons of fun and we appreciate the feedback and happy to do it again if you ever need to
3: all right might make you a regular tech tech tuesday <laughs> <laughs> somebody write that down all right all right lake speed thank you very much brian Thanks, you got guys anything to add there pal
2: no that was amazing i think i have a way better understanding of putting everything together i guess it's not not just as easy as putting in there what your friends use so it was really awesome i got a lot out of it too.
0: <laughs> that's the line of the day right there it's not as easy as just <laughs> using what your friends use
1: excellent thanks so much like have a uh, a great time um classracingtoday.com classracingtoday at gmail.com his email address remember you can help support the show uh, also, another great way to help support the show is just share it out to your friends. Uh, other racers out there that you know that aren't listening, let them know about it so they can uh, join the conversation as well. We thank all the people that help support the show. Bobby and Brian, have a great week. We will see you all next week. Have a great one. See you later.